not the shortest of ones, but not the biggest of ones. Goldilocks zone, maybe. Yeah, exactly. It does the job. Uh, so, yeah, I, 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 I it's enjoy about how you use your one. <laughs> what we do here is go back, 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 back. episode of the bros and brews podcast today is a very exciting topic episode for us uh today we are bringing you season three episode six of our brand new newly appointed topic episodes and kind of the way we do this season uh if you are you know a lovely loyal listener to us hello welcome back if you are brand new and you are joining us because you saw the title of this exciting episode hello and welcome to the bros and bruce podcast i am matthew and you will hear James's lovely voice very soon. But as I am, I have been instructed and also told James that I'm going to talk for the next little bit to kind of introduce this episode because James will not stop talking this whole entire way through this. Uh, that's a lie. It will be a back and forth. Um, but yeah, to look, today we are bringing you the magical realm of Harry Potter. Uh, Harry Potter, as you know, massive for everyone. And it is, it is completely different for everyone in the way they view it and see it. They've read it. They've watched the movies. Uh, they've gotten on the internet and they've gone through all of the fanfics and all of this type of stuff. It is it is crazy how massive Harry Potter is. So if you have joined us uh, just for that title, hello and welcome. Um, but yeah, today we are just going to be talking all things Harry Potter. Um, books, movies, and, and, and all of the above. And, and what it kind of it means for us and what it's meant for the world and how well it's done and you know comparisons from books to movies and things we've noticed and and little bits and bobs and things like that it's uh it's going to be a big one it is going to be a big one we have no how no idea how long you're going to be listening to us for um but nonetheless we are excited uh to 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 talk about this um because if you've if you have just joined us from our uh, weekly brew uh, which we have released before this episode. I have just done a complete rewatch uh, of all eight films, and it was fun. It was it was so much fun. It was it was so great to do from start to finish. Um, and I got to say, James has a lot of knowledge uh, when it comes to Harry Potter in the sense of the books. Um, for for those that do know me, I'm I am not a massive reader myself, uh, and I can say I haven't I haven't read all of the books. I've read a few, but not all of them. Um, so yeah, we kind of just wanted to combine our heads to today and, and obviously give the people what they've wanted to hear for a very long time. And that is the world, the wizarding world of Harry Potter. And, uh, this is the moment where I now, uh, unleash James onto you and he is able to talk about this. <laughs> is this thing on? <laughs> We're here. We're finally here. Uh, yeah. it's been uh, teased for many yes. many months mm-hmm. uh, it has genuinely been requested by people as well um, and for whatever reason we, we decided a couple of couple of weeks ago that this was this was to be the week uh, that we would we would do it and hey credit to you man watching all of the films in a short period of time I mean what is it less than a week right I have watched it so? I've I watched them over three days 
I that started on. Yeah. Unbelievably impressive. Yeah. Uh, I think I did my last rewatch within the last six, you know, maybe six months ago. Uh, mm-hmm. And it probably took two and a half weeks. You know, oh, we yeah. weren't yep, trying yep. to churn through them, but hey, that's a lot of hours. Um, so first off, hats off to Matt, uh, who has sort of done a lot of the mahi in that area as kind of prep uh, into this thing. Um, but yeah, it's one that's close to my heart. That's why it's taken a while for us to sit down and do this episode because we needed to figure out sort of the right beats to hit. And, uh, you know, there's heaps of Harry Potter podcasts out there if you're a Harry Potter person, um, that are far more informative than ours. Um, we also recognize that there's some people that just never ha- have never quite understood the whole Harry Potter thing. Mm. Um, but that mm. will be an element of the, the show today, trying to talk about that, trying to explain why it was such a big phenomenon, why it means so much to people and yeah, maybe head on some more niche stuff. Um, but I guess the place that I would really like to start and it's quite, uh, individual personal um maybe a bit boring uh is my relationship with harry potter uh and why it means so much to me and and it's one of those things that you kind of have to actually think about and when you sit down and try and rationalize why something's important to you it can be really difficult like why is sport important to some people why is music important to some people um and harry potter has been sort of the one uh i guess fictional series i don't really know how to frame it but it's probably the one element of culture uh pop culture arts culture however you want to frame it that means the most to me Hmm. um and it's the one thing that i truly remember kind of growing up on artistically you know some people really remember uh growing up listening to certain artists musically some people really remember films growing up um for me it's reading the harry potter series uh and i think i don't nothing will ever replace it i think there's lots of people worldwide millions of people that for whatever reason it means something similar to them um and we'll try and unpack why that is the case later on but yeah it's just i mean and i think there's 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 two camps of people. There's people that really fit this bubble of Harry Potter is kind of the one thing for them. Uh, and then there's people that it's not the one thing for them. And there's always been a bit of, I think, lack of understanding between the two sides of the fence. You know, people that are um, Potterheads. Uh, <laughs> it'd be like, how could this not have affected you as a child? And then other people are like, why do you care so much about the wizards and the wands? Doesn't it all seem a bit childish? But yeah, I have really specific memories with the books. Um, particularly, I remember being in Nelson, where my mum's mum uh, lived, when Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince came out. And I remember wait, like going and buying one of the books early in the mornings. And I mean, this seems completely foreign to where we are now. The thought of people lining up at midnight to buy books uh, in hard copy, in person, whip calls selling out of books you know you couldn't get a copy people racing to read it before it got spoiled for them harry potter 6 i remember reading chapter for chapter with my sister because uh my parents thought well we're not going to buy two copies of the same book but it's not fair <laughs> to make one person read it first and the other person wait so it was read a chapter give it to the other person look at your watch like hurry up and read your pages so i can <laughs> read the next one um i remember sitting in the cinema readings in wellington uh, after a midnight premiere of Harry Potter and Deathly Hallows 2 and just sitting there afterwards kind of, I don't know how old I would have been, 
my guess is like 14 maybe Deathly Hallows Part 2 came out in 2011 so we would have been so you would have been 16 oh yeah checks out um (laughs) and I remember just sitting there as the credits rolled and being like what do I do next with my life? Like, it sounds cra- it sounds crazy, but yeah, yeah, when yeah. you have these books come out and you have the films come out and then it's sort of finished and there's nothing mm. nothing more, it was really quite existential. And the one thing for me going, I guess, for the rest of my life, like I have one tradition in my life that I do yearly, birthdays, Christmas. Some people do the same thing every year, New Year's. For me, I wear... My Harry Potter Weasley jumper that my mum knitted for me uh, for the premiere of Deathly Hallows Part 2. I wear it on Christmas every year, just for a couple of minutes, because <laughs> summer Christmases, you know, we don't really True. need big woolly jumpers. I always take a photo with it in the Christmas tree, actually with the exception of last year. Last year, I had a, a different jumper that mum had made that she sort of gave me a, a, a crimson H to put on the jumper. Um, as sort of a representative because the, the jumper was in storage in London but for like the last what did you say it was? 20, 20, uh, 20, 2011 2011 so I think it's been, 10 this, years. It's been 10 years and I do that yeah. every single year it actually means something to me on Christmas yeah. like it's something I always just remember to do and it seems a bit silly and it's just a photo but it's the one thing that I do every year and it brings me joy. I think it brings mum a little bit joy because she made yeah. me the jumper and yeah, she gets true. to see it worn every year and truly is like a treasured position. But yeah, it's a series that I go back and read some of the books every now and then. I definitely go back and rewatch the films and yeah, I don't know. For me personally, it's just an aspect of a kind of hard to define, right? Like films or mm. TV or music, or whatever for me, it will always be the number one thing. And I, I have such a close association with characters, fictional characters. I just feel strongly about it. If anyone ever talks to me about that, I also ask that question. I'm like, Hmm, am I really going to weigh in on this? Cause I know I'm more <laughs> invested than most people. Uh, and then I have some friendships with people who feel equally strongly about Harry Potter and there's real kinship with people. So, yeah, I mean, that just it's always been the thing from childhood and also, I guess, carrying over into adulthood. It's not something that I've parked as, like, I haven't moved on from it, as I don't yeah, think yeah, many yeah. people from our generation have. It's True. a real warm thing from their childhood that takes on new meaning as you get older, and that's a reason why we still uh, have uh, a love for Harry Potter. Um, but what does Harry Potter mean to you, man? Like, your experience with Harry Potter growing up now I'm really interested to hear sort of where it sits for you because we talk a lot about Marvel with you sort of as a your yes. current uh, yeah. I say, obsession doesn't sound right but you're really invested every time there's a new film comes out you always want to see it and the TV shows and like you take the time to really consume content from that world mm. um, Harry Potter generally for you yeah, yeah. I think, I mean, for me, for me, it's always been visual for me. Um, as I said before in my intro, I, I've read, I think, uh, I've definitely read The Philosopher's Stone um, or The Sorcerer's Stone, depending on where you are in the world. Um, but yeah, I, I, other than that, I really didn't get past it. But like I said, I've never really been a reader. And that's got nothing to do with the books in itself. It's just got to do with my brain 
and the way that I process a lot of things. Um, so yeah, I, I've never really been a big reader, but for me, visually, the movies were massive, were, were really massive. Um, the books were big for mum, though. She read all of them, and she she had all of them as well. It's funny you talking about the wit calls and things like that. I remember mum going out and, and buying them and, and, and getting them when they were getting released. I, I specifically have memories of that. Um, so, yeah, I remember seeing them on her shelves and things like that. So they were definitely a part of my childhood, um, but they definitely came into more of the effect of with the movies and things like that. Um and yeah, it's, it's always been like, um, look, to be honest, it's, it's really, I was really surprised on how much I remembered, um, watching the movies back. And that's in the terms of like dialogue, um, plot lines and things like that. I was actually really surprised how much I remembered. Um, we'll talk about the movies a little bit later in the thing, but there was one movie I was watching and I was like, wow, I really don't remember this. So it kind of, kind of sat within my rankings of where I saw all the movies. Um, but yeah, I, I, I mean, I definitely, like I said, it's, and I definitely not, I would say as big of a fan as what you are. Um, and that's not a detriment to anyone that isn't, you know, a scale of big and small or whatever and stuff. But for me, I've always enjoyed them. I've always enjoyed them. Um, I remember a few months ago, the movies actually came up on TV and they were doing them every weekend. So one every week for, for, for eight weeks. And there were a few movies that I, that I tacked on and watched because I was like, yeah, these are my favorites. Um, but yeah, like I said, watching them back over the past three days, I was thoroughly surprised how well they stood up together and just how, how, like, I don't know, just how much I really enjoyed it. Um, and it really took me back. I mean, like, like you were just saying, it, it's so weird to think that it was 10 years ago when the last film came out. Um, and to think that I was six years old when the first film came out, you know, so t- 10 years for this, this kind of from six to 16 is a massive development in, in, in us as, as kids into teenagers and the, and the worlds we latch onto. Um, so for me, Harry Potter was very much a part of that world. Um, but it was interesting watching these movies back and associating them with the year that they came out and where I was in my part of my life and what those films meant for me in, in the different part of my life and growing up. Um, so yeah, I, I think, uh, I have a, I have an affiliation with Harry Potter, definitely. And it will always be a part of my life. Um, but I cannot say I am, uh, you know, a massive Potter head, like some people out there in the world. Um, because I just know how much it really truly does mean to them. I'd like to think that the Harry Potter, potter community is pretty welcoming probably because i mean the stats are unbelievable i think the books have sold something like 500 million copies like this was last update in 2018 so up and up and up just unbelievable volume Mm. in terms of copies sold um and that's just the books alone like forget the the billions of dollars worth of box office revenue for the films but i think I'd like to think there's a real place for all sorts of people on the Harry Potter fandom spectrum, which I don't yeah. think is always the case with big uh, fictional sort of fans. Like a classic example is Game of Thrones, where the people who've read the books really, or there's a, 
I don't say they look down on people who haven't read the books, but there's a clash of opinions on people who've read the books and people who've only watched the show. Mm. And, mm. you know, on Reddit, there's a subreddit which is Game of Thrones and there's a subreddit which is A Song of Ice and Fire. And when uh, Game of Thrones as a series were coming out, not just the last terrible season, people on the uh, Song of Ice and Fire, it was always about, oh, they did this wrong or they did this character injustice and there's always been a bit of a split in the fandom there and i think maybe part of the success of harry potter is how the books have translated to the films and there's such a place for people who have only seen the films as well as people who've read the books yeah Um, yeah but yeah I i think trying to analyze why harry potter has had such a cultural impact why it was so successful because the first book came out in 1997 i think in the uk um and then it was for the most part sort of yearly from them and then became every second year as the books got bigger there's probably heaps and heaps and heaps of factors um i think timing was probably a Mm. key thing like obviously releasing books in the 90s and early 2000s pre what the internet is now was completely different than a book release now like i can't ever see if George R. R. Martin writes, uh, I think Winds of Winters, the next one, if that book comes out, it will sell a lot of copies because of Game of Thrones, the TV series. But I don't think written literature will ever reach the same point, right? Because mm. you know people read on Kindles or people listen to audiobooks or the way we could just consume media is completely different. So yeah. I think that period of time was obviously like a key element to why it was so successful. Um and then probably the integration of the films, right? Like not just the fact that you have a film uh, franchise follow a book franchise, because that's happened quite a lot, but the the years at which they came out. Um, so, you know, the first book came out in 1997 and then the first film came out in 2001. And so you were having... Harry Potter and Philosopher's Stone, the film coming out in 2001, just as uh, The Goblet of Fire, the book, had come out. And so you have this kind of rolling mm. effect of people wanting more and people having yeah. to wait. And, you know, the new book, but then the films are catching up and the new book and the films are catching up and kind of keeping that ratio of film to book probably played a part into it. And you sort of get the new version of something you know and then you want the, the book and then you get the new film. And I, I mean, I don't necessarily think that was planned like it wasn't this ingenious plot but whoever decided on the rollout of the books to the films uh, just absolutely nailed it like that ratio of new content coming out uh, across multiple mediums just snowballed and snowballed and snowballed and snowballed in a way that say say again game of thrones like you have all the books have been written for years and Mm. then you have the series coming out we were just only ever getting closer and closer to a point where there was no more book material rather than the sort of feeding into each other. Um, so I think that's probably an element that can't be overlooked. And then the last thing is obviously just being a series that focuses on, on magic. Like magic is just something <laughs> yes. that we are obsessed with as yep. the human race. Uh, and magic's obviously a pretty broad term. You can kind of take it into the whole Marvel superpower mm-hmm, uh, range mm-hmm. of things. You can take it into sort of, I guess, as in Harry Potter, like the wizardry aspect. Sci-fi is another one, kind of space yeah. and ships and aliens. I'd put in the kind of 
magic sphere and that it's things that we don't have on earth um but harry potter is such a sort of a fun magic right like it's all about the food and the sports and the creatures and it's sort of the whimsy rather than a lot of you know if you were to sort of compare harry potter to all of the fictional series be they books be they films that have ever been released before harry potter and after harry potter i think what sets it apart is it's it's fundamentally a world that you'd like to live in yeah it's believable yeah and most fantasy worlds i don't think of the case i mean i'll come to the lord of the rings later on but Mm. Mm. the lord of the rings is a world which i don't think that many people would trade in our existence for that and that Mm. is the case for most uh fictional series fantasy series whereas the harry potter world obviously it's set in kind of the world as we know it and it's kind of this alternate lifestyle for people that sort of secretive it's a world that other than that dastardly devil voldemort uh people would like to live in so there's kind of a a desire to jump into the books or jump into the films but you're right it's so grounded in the real and it seems like kind of it could happen and that's why you have all you know every year there are how many thousands of people that turn 11 and think i know that harry potter's not real but will i get my letter to hogwarts you know the 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 series obviously had that kind of effect on people um and that's where i kind of want to take this to next from a, a specific literary perspective of things is um an idea of of world building which is something that i haven't been familiar with but as we were thinking about uh this topic i was trying to kind of get quite critical and try and analyze like why the books were so successful or i guess the films by extension but the the world of itself um and so i came across this video on youtube and i want to shout this person out because this is all their ideas that i'm simply uh regurgitating uh and it's a youtube channel called hello future me and the title of the video is actually called hard world building versus soft world building a study of studio ghibli uh but there's a lot of translation to the harry potter universe uh and it's something that i hadn't kind of figured out about harry potter until i watched this video i was like oh that makes a lot of sense and this is why fiction is so different sometimes and if you'll allow me a, a few more minutes, I'll I'll go through hard world building and soft world building, of and course. then I think we can discuss afterwards. So yeah, hard yeah. world building, the classic example is Lord of the Rings. So J.R. Tolkien creates this world where there's whole new alphabets and complex histories, uh, languages, cultures, geography. It's very specific about the facts of the world. And Tolkien tries to communicate this all to the reader so that they feel that they understand every element of the world, you know, what happened in the first age and the second age and the third age and how these characters relate to each other. And there's obviously the big map and Moria's here and, uh, you know, Mordor's over here and this is how different races all combine. It's so detail-orientated in an attempt to make the readers feel like the world is real because there's so much detail how could it sort of not be real Mm. and the flow and effect of that is because the world feels believable and grounded that then the audience can kind of buy into the fantastical elements because everything else seems so real like you look at the the lifestyles of hobbits and the way that they live and 
how close to i guess humans they are even though men exist in a race because so much time is spent on those elements and I actually reread fellowship of the ring recently the whole first like 100 pages is just in the shire and how these people live and how they interact and so as the series goes on more and more and all of a sudden you're introduced to wizards and if you're reading hopper and dragons and you start to just accept the fantastical elements as being mm. plausible because it's surrounded by so much specific realistic stuff yeah and so that's kind of hard world building at its most extreme uh, and then the other end of the spectrum is soft world building where Studio Ghibli is kind of the example. Um, you've seen quite a lot of the Studio Ghibli films, right? Have we talked about this on the show before? Which, like, have you seen Spirited I Away? I haven't have actually seen, seen Spirited Away, no. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, this this will be, um, I mean, Studio Ghibli is fantastic. Uh, <laughs> Studio, uh, Spirited Away is maybe the most uh, well-known, but Howl's Flying Castle uh, Kiki's delivery service uh studio ghibli is software building and that a lot of it is not super detailed in the sense that there's a scene in spirited away and it'd be an interesting experiment for me to ex- describe it to you i was sure you would have seen spirited away but there's a scene in spirited away where the protagonist who's a young girl who's lost her parents because they've been turned into pigs and she's trying to get them turned back into humans uh and she's working at this bathhouse where there are all these spirits and weird creatures and this big dirty creature arrives and it has to be cleaned and it turns out that this creature is full of garbage from the human world and when it gets cleaned and the the young human protagonist sort of helps that it turns out that he's a river spirit and he gives them all gold to say thank you and he flies away and it's it makes no sense right it's just unapologetically fantastical and miyazaki who's kind of the 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 person behind studio ghibli he leaves so much up to the imagination that as an audience you actually get told very little like there's not an attempt to explain to you as the reader or the viewer why the world works the way it mm. works and mm. all the studio ghibli films kind of exist in similar but different worlds where there's sort of fantastical elements and more real elements and it's intentionally like peculiar and unconventional and miyazaki has said like my way is not to use logic it's not about that it's more about the themes and the emotional thread of the story um, and it hits completely different to something like Tolkien because you understand the emotional journeys of the characters and what they represent. You don't really need specific details. And that's why it's a completely different viewing experience to something like Lord of the Rings, because you kind of have to just buy into accepting that what happens has a reason for happening and that the themes of the characters and what they're trying to achieve are strong enough that you don't need to know all the specifics of, the world Mm. and one of the reasons why studio ghibli does it so successfully is because everything else is so strong like you don't it's not like watching a film say the first suicide squad or any number of other films or tv series where you're like but this element of the world doesn't make sense and if they're there how can this exist and that's so often why films don't work is because the world doesn't make sense and so on the one end of the spectrum you have something like lord of the rings where all the details are written down and the other end of the spectrum studio Ghibli where it's like none of the rules are written down and that's fine because everything is so loose that it all interweaves and makes sense. And so this brings me to Harry Potter, which is very much 
down the soft world building end of things. Mm. So hard world building is all about concrete rules and consistency and realism and transparency, whereas soft world building is about the unknown and flexible rules, uh, something that the the person from this video, Hello Future Me, sort of says imaginative involvement and otherworldliness. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so Harry Potter is very much the soft world building in that. When you think about the series the world building elements get written and introduced as the series go on and the films track the books pretty closely. So this will make sense to teach someone like yourself who's never read the books in the whole mm-hmm. series, something like the department of mysteries, which is introduced in order of the Phoenix, the fifth book is something so specific and complicated that it's introduced only in the fifth book. Like it, it matches Harry's emotional arc. Whereas if you compare that to the, the first few books, it's all about really simple concepts. Like what is the food like? What are the sports that they make? Something like the currency that makes absolutely no sense. Like <laughs> I I've never bothered to learn it. Like 31 nuts is goes into a sickle and 16 sickles is a galleon or, you know, all of that early book world building, there's so much room left for possibility and mm. they don't explain, they don't, tr- you know, JK Rowling, who here's the point to note jk rowling we've said it before problematic uh her views on uh people and society and and gender and transgender people is something to put aside uh we're talking about harry potter this sort of fictional world but we had to mention at some point i've mentioned it there we can move on um but as she writes these stories there's so much room left for possibility so the early books don't drag on because there's no attempt to sort of explain why explain everything works it. the way it works. I yeah, mean, there's yeah. some information, for example, you know, Hagrid comes and tells Harry that he wasn't. Harry says, well, I don't know what that is. And so there's enough information for the protagonist to understand the world. And we learn with the character about with. all this stuff. And maybe mm. that's the genius of the book is as the protagonist kind of learns about the world, we as the audience are learning about the world. Whereas I guess True. lots of other stories, you just dive in. I know Star Wars, Star Trek, everyone kind of understands how the all the characters understand the world and you as the reader are kind of playing catch up. Mm. Um, and so the early books and the early films don't really drag because there's so little exposition and it becomes way more character driven. Um, and there's a really great quote from J.K. Rowling where she said, the characters belong to the readers as well as to me and each has their own life in the heads of those who read them. It's not the ownership of the world. And in some cases, this is why the cancel culture of J.K. Rowling doesn't matter that much is the world actually belongs to the people who consume it as much as to the writer. Yeah. Um, and it's less about understanding and more about like crafting an atmosphere and a tone and a mood. And that's why the immersion of the world is so impactful and that the first few books, we fall in love with the wizarding world at its best and then it gets ripped away with the threat of Voldemort. So you kind of buy into the story and all the best fun aspects of it. And so when this dark force comes along and wants to ruin it, you actually feel genuinely impacted by what happens. And that's only done because the first few books are lighter and then they become progressively darker and it becomes more about politics and relationships and good and evil. Whereas the earlier books are more about, you know, the feasts and Quidditch and oh yes, there's something big that happens at the end. Um, and I think, yeah, the soft world building is why 
the books and then the films are so impactful. Um, and actually one of the points that the Hello Future Me makes is this is the reason why J.K. Rowling's attempts to kind of clarify elements of the world after the fact don't really make sense don't, and no yeah. one ever really agrees with them. The whole like Dumbledore is gay and this is an element about Sirius and actually uh, in the 1800s this is what happened and we don't like those because they kind of go in the face of our imagination uh, as readers yeah. and viewers. Mm. And so when the author comes out and says, oh no, this is the way the things were and this is why this happens. It's like, shut up. We don't care. Like <laughs> it doesn't belong to you anymore. It all yeah. happens inside like my head. Mm. Um, of course the films gave visuals to something that otherwise wasn't visual. Uh, but that's why I think from a technical writing perspective, the books are so successful. And I was talking to a regular coffee customer they had the other day that works in a publishing company. And I was chatting to him about this and he said, yeah, you'd be surprised the amount of fiction that we get where actually the world just doesn't, it doesn't do either thing. It doesn't make sense, but we want it to make sense or it's not so far down the, you don't need to know all this information. It doesn't matter. End of the spectrum Had Harry Potter figured out a very specific place that, creates a world with enough rules that you begin to understand like why there are four houses and oh there's a ministry of magic and oh this is why muggles don't know how they exist and oh because they're a memory like there's enough information that it makes sense but it doesn't try and explain all the rules in the first book or the second book or the third book you know even in by the last book you're still learning new things about the way the world works and even when we understand elements for example something like flying broomsticks there's no attempt to say oh well a firebolt goes 300 kilometers an hour and it's this long and you know they only give you so much information they don't try and you know jk rowling doesn't try and frame it all through a human non-magic perspective um and so this video i found fascinating to try and understand critically like why the series works so well because of the the brilliance of the writer for all her personal faults, J.K. Rowling is a brilliant writer. And there's a kind of quite famous story about how she thought of Harry Potter on a train to London and she didn't have a pen. So she wasn't able to write down all these ideas. And that's why she thinks uh, uh, sort of succeeded because she just let her imagination go wild. And only later on, did she try and write the details down yeah, rather than like, yeah, yeah. here's a character and here's a character and here's a character. And there's obviously elements of the stories that, you know, by the last book, she had to have been thinking about certain elements that didn't get introduced for 10 years. You know, you couldn't build a world like that without thinking like sort of how does it end or what are these end elements? And that's how we've seen some really successful franchises fail. Again, Game of Thrones. Because there's clearly no understanding of how does this thing end. You just start a story and you introduce all these characters and you let them go all the way over through Westeros and you're like, damn, how do you bring them all together? Um so that's my spiel on why I think it works critically. Again, most of those ideas are not my own, but I wanted to regurgitate them because it made a lot of sense to me. And mm. I was like, ah, oh, th- yeah, this makes a lot of sense. And when you go and read a book or you watch a film within the series, you can kind of understand how the software building works. Um, your thoughts on that, sir? You've been so patient. It's <laughs> such a good audience. Thank you so much. <laughs> Oh, you're welcome. You're welcome. You're welcome. Yeah, no, totally. And I think 
uh, you know, obviously what comes hand in hand with that being so successful is that parallel with uh, this wizarding world being with, you know, like a muggle world, with a real world, you know, introducing uh, us normal muggles. Uh, it, it is it's hand in hand that parallel of oh yeah of course this is believable it's something we just don't see and it, of, of course this can happen so yeah I, I i totally understand that and um and get that comparison between something like lord of the rings as well which kind of has to be given on a bit more of a platter um whereas harry potter you have the kind of uh realm of of as you were saying that imagination so that makes total sense um and i mean obviously yeah i, I haven't read the books in, in in that kind of imaginatory way um but i can understand from uh after just watching the films how yeah it really doesn't give you all of the answers but that doesn't detract from you having a enjoyable experience watching them nonetheless um, so yeah, that makes, that makes total sense. Cause we don't want all the answers, right? Like that's why no, we no, buy into no. the Marvel series being so long. Cause there's the interest in what happens in the next film and how does this relate to that? And the same with Bond, like how is no time to die going to wrap up all these plots? We, we like yeah, those yeah. long threaded plots. It's part of why we stay with mm. series and franchises for such a long period of time. But there has to be enough given to you as an audience to, feel like you're making progress and you're understanding more and that's probably why you know harry potter fans in the same way that say marvel fans or star wars fans or whatever fictional franchise you want to name feel get more and more interested in the franchises because the more you know the more you feel like you understand and the more you want to dive back in and that's part of why i reread the book so much because actually there's so much in the book that didn't make the films that if you if you frame things from a film perspective then you go back and you're like oh i completely forgot about that element Mm. and probably that's something that the films didn't have as much time for is explaining how the muggle world and the wizarding world exist together there's not that much time for that in the films uh but just enough to understand that hey this exists and if you are one of the lucky few like you could be part of this world which is so much more impactful than just going the Star Wars world exists. There's all these systems and all these planets and they all exist. And it's so completely removed from where humanity is now that there doesn't feel like that personal tie to where you are as the audience consuming it at that given time. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Totally. And I think, I mean, you bring up the point in the sense of like the, you know, the films are not necessarily the books, you know, people would be upset that certain things didn't make it into the movies and stuff like that. Uh, while we were watching the movies, uh, Ashley, uh, Morgan's flat maiden, very good friend. Uh, she is a massive potterhead. So it was actually really nice having her in my corner while I was watching the movies. Um, because every now and then something would happen and we would be like, um, what, what does that mean? Or why has it happened? And she was able to just give us a little bit more information, which made the, uh, you know, that kind of understanding of a moment like that in the film being like, ah, okay, I get that. I understand that. But I mean, obviously from just still a, a, you know, a visual intake point of view, you can still understand the movies on that standalone, but just being able to get that little bit more appreciation of where these things have come from and things like that were were really cool i mean i remember i can't remember what movie it was um but how they mentioned that the muggle prime minister had been contacted 
um and i never i never picked up on that the first time watching it but watching it back through i was like a they contacted the prime minister why would they contact the prime minister yeah. so i don't know yeah. if it's half-blood prince or uh deathly hallows part one but the book the half-blood prince the whole first chapter is actually from the perspective of the muggle prime minister uh, yo. meeting uh both Cornelius Fudge and Rufus Scrimger and it's this whole you know when I because uh, Fran listened to the audiobooks recently I think I'd mentioned that and listening to that first chapter you're like oh yeah the whole <laughs> like you finish Order of the Phoenix and then you come into things like from the perspective of someone else it's just completely different um but yeah the films do enough of a job like referencing mm. enough of the pieces that they hold up on on their own yeah yeah totally totally and yeah I, I think it was yeah it was you know i guess moving on with the the movies and things like that and just like com- comparing them and stuff they were really good you know like i think all you need to kind of look at it in a technical point of view and in, in a cinematic point of view they're great movies and i think one of the things that i kind of stood out for me was just how good the cgi and things like that were really ahead of its time i feel or or at least just really coming into it because uh, cgi things like that didn't detract at all away from the world on what you were trying to watch it was still very believable in in a you know cinematography point of, of view and things and so yeah i think from a, that kind of you know look on the movies great and then obviously you've just got to look at the casting and you know the people that played these adorable characters and stuff i mean it was amazing watching Alan Rickman as, as Severus Snape, you know, like his betrayal as that character and just, you know, throughout the whole, the whole series is brilliant and completely holds up all the way to Deathly Hollows part two, um, which I wrote down uh, in, in my little notes here as uh, one of the saddest scenes uh, was running through Snape's memories in Deathly Hollows part two um and yeah obviously you know the connection with alan rickman and his passing and severus snape and things like that it, it was uh it held a lot of weight re-watching these movies um but you know you you really just got to look at um you know the big stars and things and i i think you know obviously the one noticeable thing i remember even as a kid noticing it as well um the change of dumbledore <laughs> as well uh changing from richard harris into uh michael gabbin um, that kind of just change of Dumbledore's for some reason was like, why did this happen? But it was, um, it was amazing watching them back now kind of being like, I don't think Richard Harris could have given us Michael Gabbin's Dumbledore at all, no. No. you know, at all. When, when he kind of comes in in prisoner of Azkaban and, you know, kind of sets the tone for where that is. And then all of a sudden, Goblet of Fire, you start getting this little bit more cheekiness and, you know, I guess flamboyancy as well to it was, uh, it was, it was magical and completely different. So yeah, I think, you know, casting and, and the acting and, and itself in the movies really, really held up. Um, yeah, I, I, it was, I, I mean, I have a lot to talk about and things to kind of just brush on and things and what I find interesting and stuff. I think, you know, uh, easy things are kind of, I saw as well in the sense of changing of the characters was kind of continuity as well. How things kind of changed from Chamber of Secrets into Prisoner of Azkaban, like Hagrid's hut was in a 
completely different location to where it was in the two films and i was like wait where did this happen forbidden forest is there now and it, it all changed and locations and stuff it was the same with um dumbledore's resting place was in a completely different place to where it was in the deathly hollows so like continuity and stuff is is hard but because I, they had so many different directors exactly like, they had they, four, four different directors yeah 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 so I mean, David Yates took over the the last five, and obviously he also went into Fantastic Beasts as well. So David Yates kind of you know took over the the, the franchise. But yeah, it did. It started off with uh, Chris Columbus who did the first two, and then massive. T- and I think when you watch those, because I on Monday I watched the first three, so I watched Philosopher's Stone, Chamber of Secrets, Prisoner of Azkaban, and once you get to Prisoner of Azkaban, there is a complete change in. Uh, how the movies feel um, compared to the first two um, with, with what Chris Columbus did and then Alfonso Cuarón yeah so what he was able to do with Prisoner of Azkaban was I, I remember when Prisoner of Azkaban first came out I was only nine years old but it being like whoa this is what's capable with Harry Potter you know, like this is where the world can go. And cause obviously I didn't read the books. So it was like, okay, I, I get it now. Um, and then yeah, Mark, Mark Newell came in and he did, uh, Goblet of Fire, just the one. Um, and then you can safely say from after Goblet of Fire, from all of the Phoenix to the end, there was a completely different shift and change in the movies and the way that it appeared in the sense of it just got a lot darker, you know? Um, the movies got a lot darker and you know what we were kind of subjected to and what we saw and things like that it was a massive change but i think that kind of like you were saying before with the the writing and the journey of going with the protagonist uh it it completely changed you know from the first one and two being 11 and 12 years old from me being a six and seven year old watching these movies it was fantastical because the kid was so young and relatable but then all of a sudden you kind of get these experiences like Azkaban and Goblet of Fire and kind of being more on the edge of being you know uh, a teenager and stuff and things being a bit more exciting and things going on there's still a lot of joy and stuff in it and then I find when you get to Order of Phoenix all the way to Deathly Hollows, there's so much more weight going on in those movies and as a protagonist and I guess of that age um, that it got a lot darker because it was getting a lot darker in the way that it was kind of, you know, showing the film and what it was showing us and things like that. Um, but yeah, I, yeah, I, I don't really know where I'm going with this, uh, at the end of it all. Um, but I think I, you know, really enjoyed it. Um, there were, you know, certain little bits and stuff that I know a lot of people were upset about. I mean, Voldemort's death right at the end of the movie, um, a lot of people found very underwhelming. Um, watching it back, obviously just watching it a few hours ago, I kind of was like, yeah. I mean, you've been built up to do so much. And then in the movie, you kind of just you kind of just disappear so quickly as well. It was very, yeah, I was like, okay, we want more. I wanted more kind of thing. You've been built up to be this big thing. Um, but I guess obviously that's the, you know, the massive kind of, uh, thing they put on the Deathly Hallows and the Horcruxes over those two movies. They kind of did that job, and that was Voldemort and himself. So, like, I, I I get it from a from that point of view, but 
I understand a lot of people were upset. Um, and then also I know a lot of people were upset about um, the kind of brushing over of the romance and the relationships and things like that between characters and stuff. I mean, I, I, it's funny, the whole entire time me and Morgan were joking that Harry and Hermione should have been together, you know, uh, from a complete joking point of view. But you kind of just watch the movies and you're like, yeah, I can understand how they're friends, you know, but I, I felt like a lot of that kind of deep development and stuff you didn't really get to see, but I understand that that wasn't the whole point of these movies was the whole romance and stuff. Same with Harry and Jenny, you get to a certain point in the movies and you're like, wait, what? When? Huh? I I missed that. Um, But once again, I, I, you know that it's going to happen. So it's like, yeah, okay. I can, I, I know that it's going to happen. I can see that it's happened, but yeah, I think, I think it was the half blood Half-Blood Prince is where a lot of the romance in the books and hints and things of that really started coming out and the movie kind of just uh, gave us hints but kind of really brushed over it and yeah, I don't know. And then all of a sudden you get to the end with Ron and Hermione and the kiss and you're like, yeah, that's what we've wanted the whole entire time um, or is it what we wanted the whole entire time? But yeah, I, I think it's I think it's, it's, it's interesting the kind of hearing obviously me not reading the books, hearing some people's, you know, I guess not really complaints, but the whole, like the differences from the books and what it was brushed over and stuff. But I mean, you got to look at it from a point of a film point of view in the sense of what are we really trying to focus on in the two hours of film that we have to do? You know, there's only so much plot and relationships that we can do in two hours. It's just not enough time. No, exactly. There's just not enough time. And that's, and that's the difference between, you know, the two different medias. And I think that's why you've got to respect the different medias as well. Because like you said, you just can't get a whole book in two hours. I mean, you know, it was cheap. I mean, Goblet of Fire is the the biggest book, right? It's the biggest book out of all no, of them. No, Order of the Phoenix. Order of the Phoenix was. And then Goblet of Fire is pretty close. They're actually, yeah. I, I can see them right now. <laughs> and I mean, you know, and then it's interesting that they split Deathly Hallows into two movies kind yeah. of thing, you know? So it's it's interesting the way that from a marketing, you know, kind of view, you, 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 you do the decisions the way that you do and the screenplays that you write and stuff. So, um, yeah, that's my long-winded, uh, quick kind of rundown of, of my movie experience. <laughs> no, great. I have lots of questions for you, but I think what you hit a couple of, couple of kind of key points that you hit on were they do really the films do a really good job of telling the story yeah there aren't a lot of holes in terms of the i guess harry's character arc Mm. that they they i don't think there are any massive massive holes there's always going to be tidbits you know characters do things that other characters were meant to and oh you left out this character yeah yeah but for the most part there's no gaping uh, plot continuity on it um, and as you say a whole lot of stuff gets left out because there's not enough space yeah. and that's why I think there is a real space for in the next 10 years there will be a Harry Potter series whether it's live action or animated who knows but there's mm-hmm. space for a TV version to visualize all of the elements of the books um, and there's a great uh, uh, podcast which I think I've talked about called called the rewatchables uh, where they go, they rewatch films and they discuss them and talk about casting what ifs and what's aged well and what's aged poorly. And one question they always ask is, would this have been better as a 10 part Netflix series? Mm. And 
I don't think the films would necessarily all be better, but there is a place for that. And I think yeah, that is totally. why it will come in. And you're right, a lot of the relationship stuff just doesn't make the cut because it's not enough time. It's not yeah. as important. Like not, yeah. It's important for 12-year-old me reading the books to try and understand why Harry and Hermione have the friendship they have and why he has a relationship with Ginny and but from a film perspective it's it's not as important as you talked about with the different directors and how the films grow and get darker and you know they do a really good job of showing change and actually mm. the change from richard harris to michael gambon i think worked really well you know there's totally. some people who die on the hill of richard harris is the only dumbledore for me and it's like no but that's not that's just it can't be true because <laughs> he is a dumbledore in completely different films and Michael Gambon's Dumbledore is completely different, but Dumbledore yeah. changes as a character. I mean, it wouldn't have worked probably if you were to recast Daniel Radcliffe and all of a sudden Harry's different, but you know, Dumbledore is this kind of flawed character. He's not the, the almost godlike character that the first couple of books show him to be. And that worked really well, just as mm. the sort of change in tones of the film works really well. And, you know, you pointed out the shift from Chamber of Secrets to Prisoner of Azkaban is so different. Like yeah. The tone is different. The way that it's shot is different. Um, and I think if all the films were the same, tone-wise, atmosphere-wise, visually, probably wouldn't have worked. It kind of no. works because, you know, there are elements of every single film that, that don't work. And the continuity sometimes all is all out of whack. Like, as you say, <laughs> the Hagrid's heart thing is just so what because they changed the geography <laughs> yeah. of uh of hogwarts but i would love to know what you think of all the films if you have you know having just watched them all rankings wise uh even if you don't have a sort of one to eight film wise ones that were your favorites or ones that were your least favorites i'm really interested to hear your thoughts before i give uh my rankings and then compare them to the way that i rank the books yeah, 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 nice. Yeah, yeah. I haven't done a one to eight. I I found it very difficult to do a it one to hard. eight. It is hard. It is hard. Yeah, but I mean, I can definitely tell you my favorite, and it has been, I would say, ever since I was younger. Uh, and that is the Goblet of Fire. Classic. I, if yeah. I had to have guessed, I would have said that. Yeah. Um, nice. Yeah. I just, yeah, I don't know. I just, I, I, I love it. I love what it's kind of all about. The whole try was a tournament, you know, the whole kind of championing that, the whole kind of bringing back Voldemort at the end. Cedric's death is still one of the saddest scenes with his dad right at the end. Did bring a tear to my eyes once again, even though you always know what's going to happen. Um, but yeah, Goblet of Fire is, yeah, uh, I don't know. It will just always hold up as something that I will happily rewatch. You know, if someone said, if someone wanted to say, you want to watch a Harry Potter movie? I'd be like, yeah, Goblet of Fire. Easily, easily. Um, but it's then, the yeah, Harry Potter Cup- sports film. Like, exa- <laughs> yeah, it's true. The, it's the so sports true. one. Um, <laughs> yeah. Even though, you know, it's more competition than sports specifically, but it is the film that has the arc of, you know, you start with the Quidditch World Cup at the start, the Triwizard Tournament yep. is essentially a sports tournament. And that's yep. why it's appealing to a lot of people because it's the kind of like the one with the competition. <laughs> true yeah very true very true um and then yeah i'd say closely coming in after would be prisoner of azkaban um i i think it was once again it was just that like i said before the switch from those first two to prisoner of azkaban was such like a yeah wow yeah this is where we can go with with these films in this kind of world um love Sirius's character love lupin as well 
Um, and yeah, the kind of just style of it and, you know, Hermione and her kind of journey throughout that movie and stuff. I just really enjoyed. Um, so yeah, Prisoner of Azkaban definitely coming in second. Um, yeah, one thing I said at the start, or I can't remember when I said it, but one movie that I completely, completely forgot the plot to, or just was like, oh wow, that happened, um, was Half-Blood Prince. Um, yeah. And I think back to Half-Life Prince and I'm like, I really don't think I've watched this that much. Um, and the whole kind of Half-Life Prince in itself is a title compared to what we get in the movie is like, why did you call it that? Uh, you know, uh, you know, you really only get the Half-Blood Prince in the book and then right at the end with Snape and you're like, well, you haven't had enough involvement in this for the thing to be the title of the thing. And I just found it very wishy-washy, that whole kind of movie. And that's when a lot of the kind of blow-over of the relationships of all the characters kind of happened. And I, yeah, I just, I don't know. As a full movie, I just didn't feel like it was cohesive enough for me um so yeah it's definitely i don't know i don't think it's the last but it's definitely not the top um and yeah i think the rest of them kind of all just fall in a similar realm of i enjoy them you know um i I don't think there's anything wrong with them but i enjoy them Uh, i think order of the phoenix is really sick in the sense of like a like a, a you know children uprising um, which I, which I very much enjoy um but yeah i think deathly hallows one is a bit painful um, just painfully slow. Um, but then it's a payoff when you get to Deathly Hallows part two and you're like, oh, okay. It's all really started to pay off and it's obviously the end of the franchise. So it's, it's kind of worth it. Um, so yeah, I would definitely say the, the, you know, the Prisoner of Azkaban, Goblet of Fire, Order of Phoenix would probably be my, you know, my top, top of the, top of the bunch at least. Nice. Nice. Uh, I didn't want to, like dive in on all your specific specific things because I wanted you to sort of get all your thoughts out, out first. <laughs> and I think you make a lot of really valid points. I think three and four, both book and film, if you were to poll a thousand people who really like Harry Potter, a thousand people who are obsessed with Harry Potter, a thousand people who barely know, those are always rise to the mm. top. Um, yeah. And I think there's probably something about where they sit in the software building that uh, they're early enough that, you're starting to become feel more of an adult like Harry and Ron mm, Hermione true. are starting to learn more nuance so it's slightly more interesting but it's not far enough down the end of the series that it's kind of the world has taken over has been taken over darkness wise yeah um Prisoner Razgman is definitely my number one film nice. I I think it's shot brilliantly I think mm. stylistically it sits apart from all the rest of them what Alfonso Cuaron did directing wise uh quotability of all the plots it's just it's always been my number one um then for me and this is probably from my most recent rewatch i think philosopher's stone has always been pretty high philosopher's Mm. stone and prisoner of azkaban definitely the two that i've seen the most philosopher's stone's really long um but i think the reason why philosopher's stone's probably my number two film ranking is it's just that unapologetic early as you say the cgi the characters are all so young you kind of get introduced to everything for the first time like quidditch and the great Mm -hmm. you know feast in the great hall and the owls and the 
for me that will always have the nostalgia right like philosopher stone i'll just it gets me every time and i i never actually get bored of it because i think it's it's so nostalgic it's not about yeah. development of anything it's kind of the introduction to the franchise yeah. um and what surprised me was i've never rated chamber of secrets as a book or as a film but the last rewatch i was like actually chamber Secrets is quite good. Like it's quite a contained story. Everything that happens in two could kind of exist yes. aside from everything else. Yeah. Um, I don't know why I never used to rate Chamber of Secrets, but yeah. And the most recent rewatch, it shot all the way up to number three for me. And I'll, I'll do my kind of holistic review of how the films rank compared to the books. Um, for me, Goblet of Fire was always high. I love a sports film. We mm-hmm. love sports. We love competition. <laughs> but actually in the most recent rewatch has been the time that I've realized that when you compare it to the books and where it sits in relation to the whole series is Goblet of Fire is maybe the, the, the film that lets its book counterpart down the most mm. in terms of the continuity of the story and the way that the events happen and how they jump from this to that to the next thing. So now I have a complex relationship with Goblet of Fire in that for me, it's the film that I like maybe can quote the most and yeah. is almost the most kind of cult meanie of the films for me. But critically, mm. I actually don't think it's that good. And because I've seen it so many times now, I'm actually a bit bored of it mm. in a, in a contrasting way to Half-Blood Prince, which is either above Goblet of Fire or below, as I sort of look at these rankings, and that Half-Blood Prince is the film that I've seen the least. And when you go and watch it, in a comparison to the book, it's really rewarding Mm. in the way that it mirrors the book and pieces of information that the the book tells in the way that the, the, the film replicates those bits of information. In the complete opposite way to like Goblet of Fire is so surface level. Half the Prince, when you watch it, as someone that's read the books, you go, oh, they actually did a really good job of transitioning to the sort of the Deathly Hallows, like the end of the series. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I, I have probably Goblet of Fire and Half Blood Prince interchangeably as, as four and five in my rankings. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the bottom three... Probably in this order, Deathly Hallows Part 1, then Order of the Phoenix, and Deathly Hallows Part 2. Um, Order of the Phoenix suffers just because the book is so big. So there's yeah. just so much missed out. I actually think yeah. there's some really good stuff about the film, like the the way the Order of the Phoenix is done, uh, the way Dumbledore's army is done. Mm. Um, obviously, Umbridge is just brilliant. Maybe, other than Snape, oh. the most brilliantly cast uh, brilliant. character within the whole film. I used to really rate Deathly Hallows Part 1 because it's kind of the the travel film. <laughs> yes. In the same yeah. way that Goblet heist. of Fire is the sports film. Yeah, it's kind of the heist film. And then yeah. The Order of the Phoenix is kind of the like the uprising film or like the rebellion film. Yeah. And I think Prisoner of Azkaban is kind of the coming of age film in some mm-hmm. senses. But actually, mm-hmm. you're right. It's so painful. And because it's, they're yeah. not at Hogwarts, it's the first film where you go like, oh, but maybe that's the point of that story, right? Like you sort of leave the safety of Hogwarts. But yeah, on rewatch, pretty boring. Mm. And then I've always had Deathly Hallows Part 2. Uh, I just think they they murder some plot points. 
uh, for a film that was sort of only meant to be kind of the back half of a small book. I don't think they did key plot points. The Horcruxes, the Hallows, Justice. I mean, Harry snapping the Elder Wand and throwing it off a bridge when in the books he heals his own wand so he can have his own wand, which is the wand he wanted, and then deciding to bury the Elder Wand with Dumbledore so the power dies with Dumbledore. It's like, that wouldn't have been that hard to film to yeah. film there were just decisions made that made no sense so that's always been my bottom um so to recap azkaban phosphor stone chamber of sequence huffle prince and goblin fire tide definitely hallows order of phoenix definitely hallows part two hit me up i want my inbox full <laughs> of people disagreeing agreeing um that would probably be my rankings um yeah, Any nice. sort of thoughts before I translate it to the the books? I don't nah, know. No, no, no. Thoughts or no? Heck no. I I don't think I could ever criticize your thoughts because I think your thoughts are more valid than my thoughts. No, um, no. There's no valid <laughs> or unvalid. Um, no, nah, I, I I can totally understand that as well. Um, it, it was funny watching, like, start. You know, watching Philosopher's Stone for the for the first time again knowing you're about to watch the rest of the movies was very like, yeah, this holds so much weight to it. Um, uh, yeah, totally. Yeah, totally get it. But yeah, I think, I mean, it's, I don't want to compare it to, um, game of Thrones, but it is very much, you're getting to the end of something and you're like, you kind of just wanting more or, or something different. But I think, like you said, it's, it is, I think it is completely different when you're, also trying to compare it to the books again once again um but yes no give me your give me your books as well i'm very interested to hear what your uh, what your thought on the books are as well so i've read the books less than i've watched the films but they're different in that like i've read the books a lot but mm. the time taken to watch film is a lot less than the time taken to read the book true that makes it the books are in terms of hours of consumption are probably 10 times longer than the films so they feel like a longer experience. Um, my book rankings may be more difficult than the films. I've made a list. Uh, Goblet of Fire and Prisoner of Azkaban is the toss-up of first and second. I think Goblet of Fire is probably my favourite. Um, for all the reasons why you love the film, it's just more time spent on all of it. Like, yeah the quidditch world cup is actually explained like the yeah, game itself I know. You know, the tasks I want that so much more have whole chapters of time um so i think goblet of fire is probably one for that it's also i'm looking at the bookshelf double as long as prisoner of azkaban so you just get more mm. um prisoner of azkaban second you know the introduction of great characters as you pointed out you know Sirius and lupin and uh it's also the book kind of with the least evil like Sirius Black is kind of the yeah the overarching kind evil. of bad thing yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, which we obviously know you know you can once you learn who Sirius is you can't unlearn that so you kind of waltz your way through Prisoner of Azkaban being like well actually Voldemort's not here and you know Chamber <laughs> of Sigmas isn't open and they're not trying to steal the stones so it's kind of all happy as Larry um, so Prisoner of Azkaban second or the phoenix third because it's such a big book like it's mm. the most rewarding when you go back and reread it because you forget so many details simply because it is so long yeah uh and that is the relationship between the book and the film like 
because the book is so detailed, the film will always just pale in comparison to it. Um, whereas the Half-Blood Prince at four, which if I put it as a film ranking is four, I think is maybe the most satisfying crossover um, because that book film where it sits in the story is kind of the explain all the details you need to know so we can finish this thing the last book is like an adventure book find all the things destroy all the things whereas half-blood prince is the most all right here's what you need to know about voldemort's backstory and the last few decades and all of these things so if you enjoy i guess elements of the world building that are kind of more hard like histories and characters mm. and geographies it can be really really rewarding and i'd suggest as you know maybe more more for people that are really like there will be a lot of harry potter geeks nerds that will say that that's their favorite because it's the most niche yeah um yeah deathly hallows follows i think deathly hallows is a pretty good book hard to tie up lots of loose ends i think it does a pretty good job uh but it doesn't take place at hogwarts and i think that will always be to its detriment that mm. you kind of miss all of that stuff yeah, yeah. um and then su- maybe surprisingly at the bottom of the list is philosopher's stone and then chamber of secrets uh and of course philosopher's stone and chamber of secrets are my second and third top films and i think i finally figured out how the films and the books compare and that because the first two books are so short they're not really very rewarding to go back and reread because you know yeah, all the information yeah. mm. in a completely opposite way. The films actually do a really good job of visualizing all of the details of the books and they are rewarding to go back and watch as a fan because you kind of see the start of the whole, the whole franchise and you go like, yep. Oh yeah, Daniel Radcliffe was that young and like, Oh yeah, the candles are hanging like with strings and you're not meant to see them. And it was interesting <laughs> for me to realize that those early books are so low, but the early films, at least for me are so high. Um, and then of course, couple of fire and prisoner of Azkaban kind, kind of being at the top of, of the stories for the books. But yeah, it's definitely harder to do the book rankings cause I haven't read them all recently. Um, but there's, I think I've finally figured out why there are differences. You know, it's not, I love this book. I love story one. I hate story five. It, there's a complex relationship between each of them, if that makes sense. That makes sense. Total sense. Yeah. That's valid. <laughs> and interesting. I mean, yeah, like I said, the only book that I've read is, is Philosopher's Stone. Um, but I couldn't even recall anything from that book even if i wanted to try to get different to the movies um i mean so, if you read it having watched the films there wouldn't be that much in the books that you don't know yeah yeah true you're like oh yep this happens oh yeah cool chocolate frogs he's got a wand chocolate frogs. charms um <laughs> those are my rankings they're completely nice. subjective i i hope at least a few people message with their opinions because these are new rankings they've they've changed so you know they're open to change over time i reckon if you were to rewatch all the films in a less back-to-back-to-back order six months from now your your opinions would change because mm. probably the later ones maybe suffer because you're like all right let's get through yeah, this. i need to get through these yeah, also yeah. the rewatchability of going back and going like oh yeah i remember that i love those lines would would have a, would 
have a different impact yeah um totally totally well because like i said i've watched more than others like half the prince i've barely watched it's yeah. same with deathly hallows i've barely watched either yeah. which was interesting the later and the older i got the less i watched these movies back um so yeah totally i probably will to be honest because i actually really enjoyed watching them back oh they're great they're great and as we sort of move this into the last section which is going to be less sort of films and books and i guess more psychology related i've got to just say like the films are great the books mm. are great and are the source of the fandom for most people or more people than just the films yeah um the films are, are great by themselves and are more of a, a touchstone for me now than the books are like I go mm. and rewatch the films way more than the books um, and I think ultimately that is part of why the series succeeded so much because the, the films are great True. but let's move in to something completely different and that is the discussion of the Harry Potter houses now <laughs> I think this has been the greatest source of if you were to take one element of the Harry Potter franchise story canon that is constantly up for debate, the topic starter, the element of the story that people can relate to and offer opinions on, regardless of where you sit on the Harry Potter sort of interest spectrum. It's the houses and yep. the tying of houses into psychology and philosophy and which house are you or which house are you, um, I think will always be the houses and again maybe that's the success of the franchise that you know it's it, it does cross into psychology and philosophy and and our real life you know you can look at the fictional characters and say well who do i have similarities to and we spend a lot of time on this podcast talking about our personalities and how we relate to each other and how we sort of view ourselves and so i did want to go into it today um and, you know, the Myers-Briggs episode was something we did really early on in the show. And sure. I think I think Myers-Briggs and the Harry Potter houses, there's a lot of crossover. And here, there are they, they both say there are X types of people or there are X uh, groups. You will fit into one of them and yet you have similarities across more than one, right? Yeah. Myers-Briggs has 16 categories, I think. Obviously, there are four Harry Potter houses. Um, but yeah, with the realization, realization that everyone has elements of all of these groups, these categories, um, but usually there's sort of a, a leaning towards one. And the classic example is Harry, Ron, and Hermione. Uh, and someone introduced to me a couple of years ago, it was a guy called Will at uh, Bristol Vic, who for the first time suggested to me that and it was a great bonding for Will and I when I realized, oh, you're a you're a Harry Potter person. Um, he suggested for the <laughs> first time to me that everyone has two houses. Specifically, you are never just a Gryffindor or a Slytherin. You are a a Gryffindor or a Slytherdor. Or mm-hmm. everyone has a dominant house and a secondary house. And we spent this whole party speaking about the psychology of the people who we knew. And I think. Harry, Ron, and Hermione are a great example in that they are all they all get placed in Gryffindor for different reasons, but they all probably should have or could have been in different houses. Harry yeah, being definitely. the obviously yep. character, should he have been a Slytherin? You know that's answered a lot through the series. Uh, you know Hermione is on the surface a typical Ravenclaw, right? Yep. Loves information, loves knowledge, values that, and yet was put in Gryffindor. And Ron. Uh, has elements that are so sort of Hufflepuff-esque and the sort of 
what are the words to dis- to describe loyalty it? yeah and he's a bit a bit ditzy sometimes he's a bit <laughs> like stupid but is very loving and i think the similarity between those three characters is that they all they're all characters like seeking the love of others right mm. so hermione coming from a muggle family was immediately seeking the affection of people who are witches and wizards but also her intelligence made it hard to make friends uh ron being a person in an extended family obviously never viewed himself as kind of the most interesting person like a bit of an afterthought and harry of course having you know growing up as an orphan having no family so they're all people that come in with this need for people and that ultimately in my opinion is why they're placed in gryffindor even if there are elements of their personality that perhaps suit other houses and this is where i suggest the the idea that everyone's um the house that you belong to you know your front half of your house is is potentially how uh you are on the inside so Mm. hermione ron and harry's are all kind of gryffindors at heart then your second half is how you appear to other people now, sometimes those are the same thing. And so your secondary house might be like way behind your primary house. But for lots of people, and this, you know, take this outside Harry Potter, the psychology of it is, you know, how we feel on the inside can be completely different to how we project ourselves. Mm. Similarly, how we view other people is viewed through the lens of who we are. Um, and on that note, I, I have eight house questions. I know you've done... Uh, the Podmore quiz recently. I wanted to ask you these questions Mm -hmm. before I discuss characteristics of houses that, you know, I, I believe relate to a more sort of real world perspective rather than Slytherins are evil and Gryffindors are (laughs) courageous and Hufflepuffs are nice and Ravenclaws are smart. You know, I've tried to apply years of why I'm so interested in the series and obsessed with it to sort of real Myers-Briggs level stuff but I'll ask you the eight questions they're not going to bring up your house but it'll give us a good framework to move forward into why I think certain things relate to certain houses and then maybe we can compare them to what you got in Podmore and that sort of thing yeah nice um, my first question is on a scale of one to ten how much do you care about what strangers think of you strangers yeah people you don't know at all one being don't care 10 being i really care yeah uh two two cool question two how much do you care what acquaintances and casual contacts think of you so people that you don't necessarily consider friends Mm. but people that you know like you constantly bump into bump into them at parties or they're friends of friends acquaintances casual contacts maybe someone that you work with that you wouldn't consider to be a friend uh i would say five five cool and how much do you care this is three question three how much do you care what good friends think of you uh that would be closer to an eight eight cool question four which of these best describes you i like to observe people and be observed by people. I like to observe people, but not be observed by other people. I don't like to observe people, but like to be observed by others. 
or I don't like to observe people and I don't like to be observed. Uh, I like to observe people and I like to be observed. Cool. Question five. How important is engaging with your own intellectual being? On a scale of one to ten? On a scale of one to ten. How one important. being, you're, it's not that important to you to sort of engage with your own intellect. And ten would be like, I constant, like that's so important to me. However you choose to frame that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I would uh, like six, seven, uh, six point five. <laughs> six or seven. I can't accept half marks. <laughs> seven seven uh six how highly do you value intelligence in other people one being it's not important to me at all how intelligent someone else is ten being it's the most important thing in other people is how intelligent they are uh five five nice and nice and neutral uh question seven what does the word community mean to you now this is kind of more of an open question but Mm. if i say your community what does that mean to you um i mean my community i mean yeah it's it's funny i've been a part of many communities throughout my life but my community right now would be just like the people that are closest to me people that are closest to you cool uh, and finally, rank these in order of how strongly they apply to you. Uh, so what gives you gratification slash validation? Mm-hmm. Uh, so we're going to do most to least or least to most. Uh, what gives you gratification or validation? The respect and love of other people, achieving goals, and the rewards that those goals bring, whether it's more opportunities or however you frame success or being able to move on to something new um setting your mind to a task and achieving that task and being proud of achieving that task uh three is doing things the right way so having i guess a code of morals that you stick to uh regardless of how it um interacts with other people um and then the fourth thing is personal development and growth so what gives you the most gratification and validation and they might all be super close um Mm. so the respect and love of other people uh achieving goals is the loose way i'll frame that um doing things the right way or going about things a certain way um or personal personal development and growing yeah, so I would say respect and love for others would be mm-hmm. my most. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I would uh, go, um, what was it, the last one? Personal development. Personal development and growth yep. next. Um, and then doing things the right way or, or moral right way. Yep. And then last would be the goals and objectives. Cool. All right. So, 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 so. Um so this is my like first attempt to put together some kind of Harry Potter quiz. Uh, And as I say, I don't think, you know, I'm not attempting to tell you what you are, but it's a nice end to try and describe how I, how I think about the Harry Potter houses. Mm. Um, And so maybe I'll return back to the quiz after we talk about 
I guess the houses and my thoughts on them um, rather than trying to go from that perspective forward. But traditionally the Gryffindors are seen as uh, brave, uh, chivalry, courage, helping others. These are the strengths, Hufflepuff strengths, uh, hard work, patience, loyalty, and fair play, Ravenclaw intelligence, knowledge, uh, planning and wit and Slytherin ambitious, uh, ambition, cunning, heritage, resourcefulness. Uh, my, I wrote down some, weaknesses of what i think traditionally the houses are viewed as um weaknesses with gryffindor is kind of the hero thing that mm. kind of like uh unjustified or unnecessary bravery um and caring what people think about you too much uh hufflepuff's weaknesses is being too trusting too naive and never prior prioritizing themselves ravenclaws uh that kind of snobbishness snobbish uh that kind of like books aren't life like information and knowledge isn't everything and sort of lacking life skills or practicalness uh and then slytherins being self-centered and sore losers and arrogant those are kind of like the typical weaknesses applied to those houses uh, do mm. those kind of line up with how you yeah. would traditionally view the four houses cool totally um now obviously that's such a two-dimensional fictional thing right like mm. the, the traditional thing is all the slytherins are bad but obviously you go on potomore lots of people get sorted into slytherin actually some people are really really passionate about being slytherins um so my main evaluation of the four houses are how how you relate to other people i think that's the most practical application of the psychology and philosophy behind the houses that you can take across the board is how mm you relate to other people and a lot of that is sort of myers-briggsy right like you do the myers-briggs it's all yeah, would yeah. you rather stay at home or go to a party or are you more comfortable it's all like life is interacting with other people yeah. um so my evaluation is that i think gryffindors are people who seek validation in other people mm. so it's all about relations with others slytherins i think seek validation and accomplishments uh which is not a bad thing goals uh setting tasks achieving them in five years i want to succeed successfully do this but it's it's very goal orientated ravenclaws seek validation and knowledge knowing stuff uh and hufflepuffs seek validation and ethics and morals so obviously that relates to one of the questions that we talked about but yeah i've written a big long list of uh traits of Gryffindors and Hufflepuffs and Ravenclaws and Slytherins and I'm just going to rattle through them all because there's no time to talk about all of them but for you for people listening to this it would be interesting to I guess play along at home see if if these uh hit home for you uh and just along the way if there's any of them that you go like oh yeah that makes sense oh, I disagree with that I'd be interested to hear your thoughts mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. uh Gryffindors first so Gryffindors care the most about what other people think of them. Stren friends, strangers, uh, they like having friendships with lots of people and they don't like losing friends. But it's a lot about relationships with other people and how do people think of me and what do I think of them. Um, Gryffindors, I think, are not the best at dating because there's a fear of what you might be missing out on elsewhere. That's that kind of oh, but what is this person doing tonight? Or what's this person doing? I could be more friends with them and I haven't caught up with them. So dating, there's a lot of, is the grass greener on the other side type thing. Mm. Um, so I think Gryffindor is a lot better at 
platonic love than romantic love and probably value platonic love more than romantic love like friendship is almost more important than life partner um gryffindors want to succeed but mainly so other people respect them so it's like i've achieved something and other people will think positively of me in comparison to slytherins who i don't think care what other people think of them they want to succeed for the prize you know whether that's uh, achieve your career goals or be a successful actor or to provide money for your family. It's very like, I want to achieve this for a specific tangible thing. Whereas Gryffindor is more the success for peer recognition. Um, yeah. So Gryffindors are good at being friends with lots of people like that social butterfly thing, right? Um, Gryffindors can be good leaders and when they're good leaders, it's because they can represent the masses. Like they can relate to a lot of different people, even if it's surface level. Um, But Gryffindors don't do things out of the good of their heart that often. A lot of the times it's, it's seeing intrinsic value in giving, making connections, the understanding that there's a uh, social currency exchange of, Oh, I offer this and you value this. And if we, uh, you know, if we're friends, you know, there's, you know, it sounds like a bad thing, but I think it's, it's just true of life, right? That Gryffindors don't give selflessly and don't make connections as selflessly as some other people. Um, networking is the classic thing, right? Mm. Like seeing mm. value in other people. Um, and I think Gryffindors are somewhat judgmental because they're so people based like they can't help but think about other people's friendships and other people's relationships and how people relate to each other which is maybe kind of a negative trait um gryffindors feel the need to repay favors uh and that ties into the fact that they're they're competitive like there's a constant evaluation of how you relate to other people in the world um and i think the key thing is saying that gryffindors take pride in their pride and i think that's (laughs) makes sense with the whole lion sigil right like there's a pride in in a good way and in a bad way yeah um into hufflepuffs unless unless you want to you want to touch on on each house as we go completely up to you no 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 honestly this sounds pretty like spot on in the sense of i can understand uh translating it into our world for sure yeah, and that's it, right? Like trying to make things that are actually translatable, be they positive, quote unquote, or negative, quote unquote. Yep. Um, yep. So Hufflepuffs. Uh, Hufflepuffs are really selfless. Like they'll prioritize others over themselves. Um, and they'll help without an expectation of receiving something in return. And that's where Hufflepuffs and Gryffindors diverge mm. in that there's no expectation of receiving something. Whereas I think Gryffindors can offer help and can be kind, but there's an understanding that if you're kind to someone, you might get kindness back at some stage. Whereas I think Hufflepuffs don't think about that. Um, Hufflepuffs for the most part don't really care what people think of them, except family. I think there's family values of, of caring what people you're really close to think about you. Um, and Hufflepuffs don't really expect the world to give them anything. I don't, Hufflepuffs don't feel they're owed anything. Um, and that's where that like hard working trait comes from. Um, they want to earn their success. Uh, 
and I think they're more family driven in a sense where Gryffindors are kind of more, I don't want to say community driven because as I've said, community, I think means different things, but mm. it's mm. about less people, right? Um, Hufflepuffs don't need external validation. Uh, they're driven by sort of moral and ethical codes. They see value in things that aren't human. Like I'd potentially suggest that there's an interest in trees and birds in the natural world and music and art and the abstract and things that get created where Gryffindors are really interested in people. Hufflepuffs have interest in things that people can create, but non-human things. Um, Hufflepuffs aren't judgmental. Uh, I think Hufflepuffs can surprise you by being really wild because they're not worried about what people think of them. A lot of the times Hufflepuffs (laughs) are actually really crazy. And I've definitely met people in my life where I'm like, Whoa, like you, you're a bit wild and I wouldn't have thought you would be, but actually it makes <laughs> sense when you think if people are unencumbered by how they appear, they're mm. way more likely to do interesting things and take risks and I guess, yeah, be a bit wild. Um, not everyone, but I think they can be. Yeah. Uh, which is why I think Hufflepuffs are, are quite good at dating because they don't take things too seriously there's not a like I must find my life partner or what if I say the wrong thing I think Hufflepuffs are quite happy to kind of meet new people because they don't care too much they're not too invested they're quite good at dating um Hufflepuffs are empathetic they're always looking for new people to care for um and the flip side is they can be really defensive when you attack their family I think Cedric and the Triwizard Tournament, like when his name gets pulled and Harry's name gets pulled, that's the one time in the books that the Hufflepuffs like, stuff you, man. Like this was meant to be our moment. And it's because they they all rate Cedric. Like there's that yeah. family. Yeah. If you come against us, like we will fight back. Mm. Um, they're sort of the mother and brother and sibling and parent of all their friends. Um, so I think Hufflepuffs are kind of grounded, hardworking, uh, and interestingly, badgers are their sort of sigil. And badgers live in clans, and they sort of be fierce when they provoke you. So that's my Hufflepuff spiel. Um, Ravenclaws value people's intellect over everything else. Can someone operate on the same mental, intellectual level as me? Uh, you know, it's all about the top two inches, right? Um and so in dating Ravenclaws need to be like challenged and pushed and flirted with. Uh and because they love to be challenged and they love something new, mastering new skills and hobbies and if something's new to them, it's always like, Oh, could I be good at this? Like how difficult is this? Mm, mm. Um But Ravenclaws are bound by logic, which a lot of the time is to their detriment, right? Like a, if something isn't logical, it doesn't make a lot of sense. You know, they tr- try and frame everything through what they, how they see the world. Um, and so Ravenclaw's toe the line of superiority. Uh, and it's funny because they're humble in that they revere the knowledge of others. Like they value other people's knowledge and they seek to learn from the experts and they want to pass their knowledge on to other people. But sometimes they look down on people that aren't like at their level. Um which is why I think thinking about Ravenclaws as teachers is interesting because you could be a really great teacher if you were a Ravenclaw that valued intelligence and learning and knowledge and you wanted to pass it on to people. But there are some people that are, are really intelligent in their field but have no interest in sharing that information yeah. with others. Mm. Um, 
Ravenclaws value the past and the knowledge and the ideas of those that have come before them. Um, and Ravenclaws can feel a kinship with people they've never met before. Like if you imagine a community of writers or academics or scientists or chess players or poker players, like any community of people that share the same ideas and interests, Ravenclaws can feel uh, a kinship with those people, even if you've never met them before, like those imagined communities. Um, and so Ravenclaws care what friends and colleagues think of them. There's that kind of like academic like battle of wits, but, I would say I don't think Ravenclaws care as much what strangers think of them because they sort of consider the opinions of people they don't know to be a little bit beneath them. Mm. Um, yeah, Ravenclaws can be experts in fields but limit themselves in not valuing other things, right? So some something's either important or it's not important. Um, and they're sort of intelligent in the traditional sense of the way the Western world views intelligence. Um and I think they're messengers. Like they take information from one source, they learn it themselves, and then pass it on to people who they deem appropriate. Which is why a bird, ravens, uh, are appropriate as sort of winged beasts. And also, I've learned that ravens are really intelligent. Like they're up there with dolphins and chimpanzees on the animal intelligence scale. Um, huh? Raven claws. Finally, Slytherins. Uh, so socially Slytherins are constantly assessing what other people have that can benefit them. So similar to Gryffindors, there's a kind of the networking side of it. The downside is if someone doesn't have perceived value, it's like, well, you maybe have nothing to offer me. And Slytherins don't pretend to like someone if they don't, which I think is an underrated yeah. skill or, or personality trait. You don't have to like everyone in life and Slytherins don't. Um, they make excellent teammates. If you have a shared goal, like if you have a common goal, Slytherins are the best people to have around. Um, they know what it is about other people that they don't like and they work backwards towards what they do like. Whereas there are other people who who figure out what they like and then kind of then go, oh, is there anything I don't like about this person? Um, Slytherins will always prioritize themselves in the long run, which is again, not necessarily a bad thing. We talked about that on the Protectus episode, right? Like there's a diff there's yeah. such an area between selfishness and selflessness. Mm-hmm. Uh, you look at people in history and you're like, they wanted to do their thing and they were determined. And we see that as a positive framing of a person. Whereas if you say someone's like, it's all about themselves, it sounds negative. Um, Slytherins are good at having different personalities around different people. Uh, they have distinct goals. Slytherins, I think can be manipulative sometimes in really bad ways but sometimes in subtle ways it's possible to be manipulative for good reason you know if you have someone that you say for example like again i'm just plucking out something random back when you were smoking you could be a manipulative person and convince someone to not smoke by manipulating them to think that it was bad like it's not necessarily a bad trait to be able to convince people to change mm, uh mm. but sometimes obviously it can be so the runs are work smarter not harder people um uh so the runs sometimes decide not to like something that other people like even if they don't really hold that for a genuine reason so that like <laughs> i've never seen that show i'll never like it because you say you like <laughs> it in your stupid thing um so the runs are competitive they'll team up to benefit each other uh they're driven they're calculating uh and they care what strangers think of them maybe even more than friends because they're comfortable in their own social standing but they want to be admired by people they don't know and i think that's the 
the kind of like the goal orientated thing, right? Mm. Like mm. my friends know who I am, but random person, I want them to be attracted to me or care what they think about me. Um, and I think Slytherins struggle to understand people who come from a different social standing to them, which again is not necessarily what's well, not, not a bad thing, but you can understand that, right? Like people come from completely different ways of life. Yeah. Um, and so Slytherins sometimes lack empathy. Uh, the excellent problem solvers, I think, you know, that's the work smarter, not harder. Like how do I achieve this goal in the shortest amount of time with the least effort sort of thing? Uh, they're ambitious, like in a good way, as you said, sort of bringing about what you want to achieve. It's funny that, you know, Harry Potter makes ambition out to be such a bad thing and then you apply it yeah. to real world and ambition is seen as such a good thing. Because um, the ones are confident, comfortable in their own skin uh, and they're loyal in a different way to Hufflepuffs, Gryffindors or Ravenclaws and that they're loyal to those who they think deserve their loyalty. Um, and the last thing I'll say is I think Slytherins like they get shit done like the world needs more <laughs> Slytherins in charge right like people that who kind of wade through all the BS and it's like what actually needs to be done yep. let's just do it um, I think is one of the most positive Slytherin traits that's wow. me uh, that's brilliant that's my thoughts um again obviously this podcast is is going on and on and on so i don't expect to you to weigh in on any of those but general thoughts i mean i tried to i tried to see the the pros and the cons of of Mm. everyone and again relate a lot of it to people in life that i know and what people value and what they don't value and that's why if i was to really quickly go over what i asked you about questions like the asking how much you care about what strangers think of you. Like Hufflepuffs don't care. Mm. Gryffindors care a lot. And so there is yeah. no, of course, somewhere in the middle. Whereas acquaintances and casual contacts, Hufflepuffs start to rise and then other houses start to fall. And then when you get to good friends, it's like Hufflepuffs really care. Mm. Um, and maybe uh, Gryffindors, you know, again, there's, there's changing and based on how well you know someone. And then how do the... Uh, yeah, best describe you the the observed people don't observe people it's all about your inward and outward looking like do you care what people think about you or do you not care what people think about you and how how much are you interested in observing what's going on in the world versus how comfortable are you just in your own skin and actually you're not you're not that interested in other people's stuff and again mm. that's not a good thing or a bad thing necessarily um <laughs> obviously engaging with the intellectual state thing like for Ravenclaws is so high and for Hufflepuffs so it's just maybe not so high and Gryffindors and Ravenclaws uh, Slytherin somewhere in the middle and then the whole like valuing intelligence in other people versus valuing love in other people or compassion in other people um what does community mean to you like I think for Gryffindors it's all about friends whereas for Hufflepuffs it's all about family Ravenclaws it's all about peers and like-minded people and for Slytherins it's kind of people they perceive to be allies <laughs> um and then the gratification validation respect and love of other people is obviously what I've prescribed to Gryffindors Slytherins achieving goals how do you bring success uh Hufflepuffs going about things with a certain code and your morals and your ethics uh and then Ravenclaws I think it's all about personal development and growth obviously people exist on the spectrum yeah. um but having done this uh and this will be the last thing i say it'll be all over to you to finish out the episode <laughs> uh 
as I see a lot of myself in Gryffindors and that I really care what other people think of me for bad and for good. And a lot mm. of what I do in life is wanting to please other people uh, and also networking. Like that's a lot of what I've learned over the last few years. I'm so good at networking because I see perceived value. And if I give something to someone, I may receive that back. I think you need that to be an, to be an actor or like it's a positive trait. Sometimes to my own detriment though, like I've gotten so cut over not catching up with friends literally today. And I, this was completely removed from thinking about this episode. I messaged my Brislovic cohort with a picture of us being like, think of you all and we worked today. And that was such a Gryffindor wanting to retain those friendships and those <laughs> yeah, ties and fearing yeah, yeah. that those people have forgotten about me aspect. So that's a big part of my personality. Um, and then I, I think where in the past I've thought I was more Slytherin-esque. Actually, I think I'm more Ravenclaw-esque in that I value intelligence and intellect quite highly. And sometimes, as I've said in the past, that whole academic brain thing mm. has been to my detriment, again, with an acting. But I love that. Like, I love reading and research and academia and information Uh and I think that is quite a different aspect than my Gryffindor personality, which is probably, you know, the way people perceive me is way more as a Gryffindor, where actually internally I might be more of a Ravenclaw and wanting to seek that stuff out. So for me, I think I'm somewhere in the Gryffindor, Ravendor area of the world. Uh, there's obviously aspects of Hufflepuff and Slytherin that I can relate to, but I think those are the things that I can relate to the most. That's me. I'm going to shut up. You can probably hear that my voice is going. Uh, your thoughts, where you think you fit house-wise, what Pottermore told you, uh, I'm really interested to hear. Yeah, yeah. I mean, first and foremost, I've got to say everything that you had just kind of, you know, gone into and stuff. I love, you know, the way that you've been able to to describe the houses and kind of put them into real terms, not in just, you know, big, bold titles. This is what this house is. Um, I think it's brilliant. And uh, yeah, I, I think this thing the whole entire time, like you said, I can definitely see how I'm a bit of every house. I think everyone is. Um, uh, but yeah, I think it's, it's funny. I think growing up, I always glorified Gryffindors. Um, as well, that's many, what the series many, does, right? Yeah, exactly. It did. It glorified Gryffindors, and I always saw myself as a Gryffindor, definitely. Um, but as I got older and kind of tried to, you know, understand the houses more and and, and understand myself, um, I've definitely come into be more of a Hufflepuff for sure. Um, I, I got to say, if anyone asked me over the past few years uh, what house I was in, I always said Gryffindor. I always say I'm, I'm, I'm not neither or one. I'm a Griffin puff. And I think that kind of says for you, um, what you described it. I think I kind of on the inside have always perceived myself a Gryffindor, but outwardly I've always been a Hufflepuff. Um, but I think more and more, the, the older I get and, and stuff and the, the way you kind of described everything there, um, is I would say I'm just a straight up Hufflepuff. Um, and it's funny after watching the movies and learning more about the houses and, and what you've just said there, I'm kind of proud for that fact in the sense of that. Um, I've just been like, yeah, straight up. Yeah. I'm Hufflepuff. Um, 
it's it's funny i i read something recently about the houses and things and you know the the founders salazar slytherin godric gryffindor rowena ravenclaw and is it Hel- helga helga yeah hell yeah helga, helga hufflepuff um when they created these houses the three original um that sorry not the three original um gryffindor slytherin and Ravenclaw, especially Salazar Slytherin, which I mentioned in the movie and stuff, was like, "I we are going to have the like greatest of houses, mm. and they are going to be the epitome of our houses, kind of thing." Um, so those three were very much like, you know, we're going to be very specific with who we're bringing into our houses and who is coming to Hogwarts. Um, whereas Helga Hufflepuff was very much like, "Well, that's uh, that's not fair. I'll 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 take anyone." Like I'll take I'll take everyone who wants to who wants to come to Hogwarts and whoever you guys don't see deem fit to be in your houses I'll have them and they can be a part of my family um, and I'll give them you know the what, what they deserve to be treated and stuff like that and I read that and the way they kind of described it and and you know what kind of Hufflepuffs are all about and I was like yeah I I, I kind of I kind of loved that kind of iteration of Hufflepuffs in the sense of Hufflepuffs can be anything and everything of all of the houses and you know your kind of your loyalty and and your family values will be valued in our house kind of thing um which yeah I like I said I read recently I was like I really I really like that kind of description um of that um but yeah I think uh yeah like i said i definitely consider myself to be a half a buff now i did the pottermore uh quiz as you said the the wizarding world uh and it did pop me into hufflepuff um i'm pretty sure i did it like when i was younger like years ago and it did pop me into gryffindor um because you probably as that age wanted to be a gryffindor and you yes, would have answered the like, questions this, this. yeah 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 exactly um so no i was pretty i was pretty honest with the way that i i did the the quizzes now and yeah pop me pop me into uh into hufflepuff um i will also say i did do my patronus and my wand just little little tidbits for the for the coming to the end of the episode uh my patronus was a manx cat oh Um, interesting what did it tell you what that it no it didn't it it didn't describe why it was that at all um uh i did have a look though the manx cats are typically uh given to slytherin um houses uh, Slyther- people that are, that are in Slytherin house. Um, so I did find that very interesting um, because the Manx cat is all about like abnormality and being yeah. different and things because um, a Manx cat, if you don't know, have very short tails, um, which yeah. is very distinguishable between other cats and things like that. Um, so yeah, I guess I can kind of see how some of my choices, I can see why it might've gone a little bit more down the Slytherin route. Well, independence, um, curiosity, patience, those are definitely yeah. aspects that I'd ascribe to you. Yes, exactly. So yeah, so I got the Manx cat. Um, and then my wand, if anyone is interested, let me get it back up here, is a cedar wood with a unicorn hair core, 10 three quarter inches and slightly springy flexibility. You're slightly springy and flexible. Yeah. yeah, and I do like a good cedar wood. Uh, it's got a lovely smell about it. Quite a strong tree. Unicorn here, you know, ten and three quarter inches. Not the 
not the shortest of ones, but not the biggest of ones. Golden Luxone, baby. Yeah, exactly. It, it does the job. Uh, so yeah, I, 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 I it's all enjoyed... about how you use your one. <laughs> I really enjoyed doing those quizzes just to kind of give a little bit more insight, but yeah, I got to say, man, I really love your description of the houses and, and what they mean and stuff and kind of putting it into a, like I said before, not just kind of glorifying the, the titles of courageous, cunning intellect and all of that kind of putting it into more worldly terms of, of for anyone really so i found that very interesting to listen to and i hope everyone else did as well because i did um but it did kind of just justify the fact of how i am kind of a, a proud hufflepuff these days yeah i would definitely gryffindor and hufflepuff would be the two houses mm. and i think there are a lot of people in the world who are harry potter fans or know enough about harry potter that are hufflepuffs at heart that want to be Gryffindors. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I don't think you, I don't think any of the houses are better than other houses, but mm. I think I see a lot of both of those houses in you and that you're a real people person. And yeah. the same way that I'm a people person. And that's mm. a, both a Gryffindor and a Hufflepuff trait. Like you can get on with basically anyone, but you also have close friends and like a community of people, mm. uh, and you're you're really kind like caring person and i know those words seem so hollow because they're used so often by kids and when they're not kind of deserved like oh kind and caring but they are actually (laughs) traits that a lot of people don't have or they exist on the spectrum of you being really kind and caring or you Mm. actually aren't that kind like kindness is a difficult trait. Like I think we we think of it as a sort of bland two D concept, but it's actually not at you know it's a lot more complicated than that. Yeah. And I think yeah, you have a lot of uh, empathy and sympathy for people, and you value caring about other people as much as you do sort of spending time with other people. Yeah. If that's it, like if if I was to compare the two of us socially i think i would experience more needing to please people than you do mm. again this is all i i don't know how you exist on the inside but you know our mm. friendship we've known each other for a long time and um, that's way more down the gryffindor end of the spectrum than the hufflepuff end of the spectrum which is like when i spend time with people i'm going to give them all my attention because <laughs> i've got this moment with them but there's a lot of crossover uh, socially with those two in the same way that there's a lot of crossover with Gryffindors and Ravenclaws and Ravenclaws and Slytherin mm. like you could draw the whole diagram of where this crossover with everyone um, yep. but yeah you could tell me you're a Gryffindor and I'd be like absolutely you could tell me you're a Hufflepuff <laughs> and I'd be like absolutely it would be the other two houses that I'd be like what, what? really no. I don't yeah I don't <laughs> not sure I see that uh, and that's I think the real strength of viewing it not as a one and done situation but from the mm. characters in the book and us in, in real life um yeah. i've done Pottermore twice as a kid uh i might have done it recently as well it's always been gryffindor, always so. gryffindor. but hey that's why <laughs> i wanted to make a big thing about you know gryffindors are just as flawed as all the other houses and a lot of it comes down to our uh obsession with people mm. um we maybe sometimes you know for me it's actually just let some people drift away you don't have to be friends with everyone you don't have to impress everyone you don't have to care that much about what other people think i mean that's something that i'm trying to work on and i think as across all the houses there's probably elements where people can 
try and work on their weaknesses rather than their, their strengths. But I'm glad you found some value in it. We approach two hours on the longest episode we've ever done. I'm not surprised. <laughs> True. Uh, thank God we didn't try and do this tomorrow when I'm meant to be going to an audition yeah, after we've done it. That's a um, good point. Thanks so much for this week, man. Thank you for obliging me on a topic which was always going to be long and in-depth. Uh, and I had to really think about what I wanted to talk about. And uh, like I could talk about this for ages. Maybe not yeah. anymore now because the voice is going. But over <laughs> a beer, you know, for me, it will always be something that I can talk about with people who are mm. big fans or not fans or not, fa- you know, somewhere in the middle. Because I think there's always something to talk about. And that is the mark of why Harry Potter has had such successes. It continues as a cultural phenomenon. Like, I don't know if yeah. I'll have kids, but it's the kind of stories that I want to read to young people and I want to pass over. We've yet to sort of, or maybe now they're a generation of parents that I imagine they're definitely a generation of parents that are reading Harry Potter to their, their, their children or young people. And that must be incredibly rewarding. So yeah, for me, it will just always be my number one go-to fictional universe that I relate to and had, had and continues to have a big impact on me. So Thanks for letting me talk about it for two hours. <laughs> no, thank you for wanting to talk about it. Honestly, yeah, I, I knew when we decided that this was going to be a topic for us that it would be a lead of yours, and I'm glad it was, man. I think it was super interesting hearing your point of view, um, and you're kind of, I, I say this about all of the topics you kind of bring forward, uh, it's your passion behind them, man, um, and your just, you know, your love for it, so uh i and it comes across totally it totally comes across from from how you deliver it and how much you have to say um coming on two hours um so but thank you for letting me be a part of it um and look i was i was really keen to do a rewatch of the movies um so it was kind of really nice to kind of uh, you know, envelop myself in that world um, over the past three days and then talk about it. Um, there were definitely some little tidbits and things that I didn't get to mention. But like you said, I think that's a, a future conversation that you and me can have in the sense of, hey, did you know this? Oh, there'll be um, a part two episode in a year's time. I mean, we'll talk <laughs> about it in person more, but there's definitely room for a, a part two, I think, at some stage. Because hopefully... Yep. This will be an episode that's very listened to and very hey. liked and very commented on. No pressure, <laughs> listening audience. <laughs> but yes, you might have to uh, chop this into two different car rides or two different meals or however you like to listen to our podcasts. But as always, we do appreciate you dropping in um, and enjoying our content. And if you do enjoy our content, please do get in contact with us. We're on Instagram, Bros and Bruce Podcast. Um, and just, yeah, give us, give us a drop in our DMs, you know comment on some some of our posts let us know what you're loving and what you want to hear next time um because we absolutely value you guys coming in week in week out um so once again thank you for being here 100 percent uh thank you for listening matt thank you for your time as always i love talking about the stuff that i'm passionate about with you and i love that you took the time to go and watch the films and to you know uh come to this episode prepared with your own uh, opinions and perspectives because I wasn't just interested in coming in here and, and spieling for two hours. Although I recognize <laughs> I've done quite a lot of that. Um, thank you again to you Potter folk out there. You're welcome. We hope it's been worth the wait. Uh, if you're not a Potter person and you've got through two hours, I congratulate you. Uh, it's been a hell of an episode for me. I'm ready to go and have dinner and a glass of water, but Matt, thank you so much uh, to everyone else out there. We don't know what the next topic will be. It'll be something interesting, something very different. 
but um yeah thank you again for this week it's been harry potter a spectacular season three episode six of the bros Brews podcast matt all that's left to be said is we will see you next time Peace. I'll be